Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 12 with Joseph Bienvenu and Joseph Makos. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. So today we're going to talk about audience. Audience and interactivity uh, in the poetry world. As far as well, yeah, presentation. I think we're going to get to that. I think the idea is we're going to talk about audience in general. And that's going to lead us to a discussion of how are some different ways you can address audience, which is going to lead us to some interactive poetry. So are we tackling the issue here of the issue or the topic of the way that the poetry reading is presented today and the, or the types of different poetry readings that were presented today and how those dynamics work and how they don't work. Well, yeah, I think that's part of it. But I mean, I think for a lot of poets, hell, they don't even do too many poetry readings. I think part of it is like, how do, how do poets interact with their audience? And I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we got to get to the poetry readings. But before we even get to that, I think there's a lot of authors who, unless they really get to a level of having some recognition, they don't even do readings, really. You know, they just, um, the interaction of the author audience. with the audience is just on the page and nothing else, right? Huh. I haven't really thought about that. Because I guess our scene here in New Orleans, we have quite a few readings. Maybe not as many as we used to, but... But you think of like academia, like poetry academia, poets who have gotten some amount of recognition, they do readings, but a lot of them are unaccustomed to readings until they get to that point. They haven't really had an experience of reading coming up while they're developing their style and developing what they're doing. They don't develop those things in conjunction, right? That's like an afterthought. Yeah. I have to say that I never took a class on reading my poetry. I never took like no, a... they don't offer classes on that, really. On performance. I, I never took a performance poetry class. Or, Maybe somebody does now, but generally they don't really offer that, right? Yeah, I never thought about that. So people, so, so people go through their academia or their just, you know, I guess raw talent. They become a poet because that's their thing and that's what grips them and they, and they live the life of the poet, the lifestyle. Uh, but... Uh, we we have a thing that's called poetry, which readings, which are basically the concerts for whether it's a small concert or a big concert, right? So it's like the performance, the performative aspect of of uh, of of poet of the poetry world, just in general. So what do you say? You say, oh, you want to go to a poetry reading? No, people is like you know who shows up to poetry readings. But I mean, even poets though. Like I think of, I mean, I don't know if it was different at UNO, but I think at the, I think about the UMass MFA program. And basically, most people, the only time they read was live lit, right? Which was Amherst books, books put on a yeah, I remember those put on a thing, and it was like every semester, you got a selection of MFA students who would read, and most people that was the only reading they would do the whole the whole time they were there. They would do that once or twice maybe, and that was it. And they didn't really search out other places to read or other things to do. I find that interesting that somebody could go through a degree program for poetry, and I guess I guess that falls into the sort of the, the private poet practice, which I think is not for all, but I think for a lot of academic poets, that's kind of what they feel like is like this. They're they don't want to have a personal connection between the poet and the audience. They want it to be like you just read this product that I'm putting out in a book and have a reaction to it. Did uh, UMass breed a lot of uh, professor poet types? Um. Yeah. I mean, I think I think a good amount. You know, for an MFA program, I think there's a lot of people who came out of that. But even people who are not necessarily pro- professor poets, I think, as a lot of those kind of MFA programs do, it bred a lot of poets who the way that they thought to interact with the world with their poetry was, all right, I find someone to publish my books that's already an established press. And I do it. Maybe I do a little reading tour or something, but it's fairly minimal. And I don't 
I think a lot of those people, you know, a lot of them are, are great poets, but they never really developed a reading style or a way to, to interact with an audience with they read. It comes off as someone reading something off of a page. How do they promote their books then? Because I think a lot of people reading poetry, they don't care about that. Huh. Right? Like, I mean, they might, they care about knowing about who the poet is. They care more about seeing a review somewhere than they do. Ah. You know? Seeing a review or... Or, or being know, in a like, press they just like, and they buy they buy things from that press, and they go, and then they, and then they they learn the catalog, and then they sort of write their poetry around this. I mean, do they do they write their poetry for the specific press? And I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, of? I'm saying they do. They might do readings. I'm not saying they don't do readings at all, but they do a reading specifically in conjunction with a magazine that they were publishing, or specifically in conjunction. With a book that a book release or something, they're not people who are going going around reading on a regular basis, where they're developing some way of interacting with the audience, right? Right. So what you're saying is that is this is something that's cultivated. Either you have the performative aspect going on. I mean, only I, I mean, like really, I can only think of, I can only think of you know maybe a handful of poets who are good on the page, nice people, and can read well. Well, but yeah, there's a split between that, right? Like, I think a lot of academic poets feel like, oh, well, that's for somebody else to do. Like, that's for slam poets to do, or that's for someone else to do, right? It's not, they don't think about performance being an important thing in their work necessarily. I mean, there's exceptions, but I mean, I think the majority of people more on the academic side don't want to do that. And I think equally, a lot of people on the performance side are like, fuck publishing, I don't care about that. I'm about the performance, and I don't really care about putting putting a book out or putting, putting, thing out, which is a weird, like it's, I, I mean, where I think the best place to be is somewhere in the middle, but, but I think on both ends, you kind of get people stuck on that one aspect of it. They're focusing on. Sure. Very performative, uh, uh, poets out there, right? Uh, the slam scene is very performative. It's entertainment in a certain sense. You look at a poet like Saul Williams and that's like, that's like very poetic. It's poetry entertainment, you know? And I mean, I think the New Orleans slam scene is better about it than most places. Like, I think some of those people do have books out. But if I think about, in general, slam po- poets I know, how many of them have ever put a book out? Some of them have long careers and never do. Right? They just, that's like not, they're not concerned with that. They may put a CD out. Ah, right. You know? But that's a different thing. So what? So where's the audience interaction there? Because, you know... I I know you might have a different opinion on this, but I can I can safely say that I've heard some really good slam poetry, and that and that it was it was engaging, it was cerebral, it was emotional. No, I mean, I would say I it have, was successful at what it was trying to do. I I would say I have, but if I, but if I want to really think about it and I want to put a percentage on that, it's pretty low. It's probably in the five percent or lower range. Ouch. Where I mean, and to be fair, I would not be that generous with most with most poetry. I think all poetry in general, I think, is probably in the twenty five percent range at best of what's what's actually good as a whole. Yeah. So, but it's doing a little worse, I think, than poetry on average. Good twenty percent worth, maybe. You know. Uh, so, audience engagement, though, because I think when I go to a slam reading. Uh, or a slam, sorry, slam reading, is that, a, is that redundant? Maybe. A slam yeah, reading? I guess. When I go to uh-huh. a slam reading, uh, when I go to a slam, the one thing that's uh, the element of the slam that I never really bought, and I don't know if slams are always this way now, but I think the, uh, the idea behind a slam is it's competitive. Yeah, and I, don't, I think you're right. I don't know if it's always like that anymore, but that was certainly the original idea. And I think a lot of people who are really into that scene are still, I mean, that's a big thing, like the national competition. Yeah, and I find that very strange because, well, all right. Well, the audience interaction there is that there's people voting, there's judges, there's people who are judging you, there's, there's, there's a point system, there's a, yeah, if you go over your, if you true, go over yeah. your times, if you go over your time, yeah, you lose points, yeah. like, it has to be, what, three minutes and 15 seconds, and every time you go over by a minute, you lose a point, or something like a second, you lose points. Something like that. So there, so that. Well, my mean thing that I always say about slam, but it's unfortunately part partially true, is that it takes all the worst elements of poetry 
stand-up comedy and theater and mixes them together and leaves out all the good parts of all three. But because there is, I mean, I think the competition part, you are trying to, uh, yes, I think the idea behind the competition, though, is to get the audience to be saying things and reacting, which is supposed to influence the judges to vote in certain ways, right? Is kind of that's where the audience part of it is. But if you really think about how that works, would you have a very good play if it was based on who gets the most oohs and ahs out of the audience? No, that'd be a shitty fucking play. And it's the same thing with poetry, right? You know, like the, the what that promotes, what that engenders is really negative. And I think there are people who figure out a way to navigate it and still kind of get a good reaction out of the audience without that. But if that's all you're going for, there are plenty of other people who are just like, I just want to win the prize. There are. You know, and if that's what you're trying to do and you don't care about anything else, it's really easy to win that prize and write things that aren't really poetry, that are basically bad monologues that wouldn't cut it as a comedy routine or a poem or a monologue in a play. You know, it's not, you know... So basically, I think what you're getting at there, I mean, we can we can drift away from the slam discussion here in a minute and talk about some other things. But I think what you're getting at there is and this is one of my issues with uh, one of my things with the issues with slam is. And look, uh, I have probably been to a hundred slams because when I lived in Boston, I went to the Lizard Lounge all the time, like every week I was there with Melissa Goodman and we were we were and it was and it was rad. Like there was a cool thing, but. That was a little different because Jeff Robinson had his little trio band there, and it was a little different, a little different, you know. Uh, But the one thing that really, like, that one thing that would get me about about the slam scene is that you did see these poets, and just like the MFA scene, would fall into a formula, a formula, and it was like the same intonation and the same... Yeah, way that they were throwing down, and it was like the same breaks and the same <gasps> exhales and, de- and 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 inhales, and it was like very formulaic in the fact that they were trying to reach that three minute mark, three minute fifteen seconds or whatever it is, three minutes, and that well, was ba- and emotionally manipulative too, like for sure, you know. And I think that's what bothers me the most about it is it's like it's so much about emotion, which is that's fine, that's one of the positive aspects of it, I think, and but- that's. And that's the, where the comedy. That's where the comedy comes in a little bit. The monologue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Okay. So. But okay. But let me ask you this. So you you, you said you've probably been to a hundred slams or something. Sure. I How, mean, did you perform at any of them? Sometimes did you try? Uh, I did. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I. I, I out what the first... did you think about that experience? Well, I remember specifically a couple. Uh, one time. It was just, uh, you know, they were they were just pulling out of a hat. Yeah. You know, they were just signing people up and putting them in brackets and just pulling out of a hat because it's a competition. And 10 poets sign up and you got heats and you go back and forth and you do the thing and this poet against that poet and the whole thing. I remember one time, like, I just didn't get picked. And I was just like, well, Were you trying to do, like, what you would normally read or were you trying to tailor it a little bit to the... They made me an opener. They made me, they made me a, an opener for the second round uh, or something. Okay. Like, oh, you're going to be the opener for the, the one, the one, the, the poet that comes up and reads well, were one were you doing, like, what you would poem? normally do or were you trying to tailor it to the situation? Uh, I remember the poem I read, too. It was, uh, it was like, it was like this poem. It was like, uh, this poem's not trying to impress you. This poem's, this poem's seven ninety nine on the shelf. This poem's... <laughs> You know, it was like it was like this like well, list. But it does it was, sound like kind of like a it was this poem. list poem. <laughs> it was a list poem, yeah. And it was, uh, it was, uh, oh man, I, 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 I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, it was like, oh, this poem's titled. That's what it was. It was a poem, and it was just every line of the poem was this poem's titled, this poem's titled, this poem's titled, and it was sort of making fun of slam poetry. It was sort of making fun of poetry in general. It was a meta poem because it was all about people who come up to the mic and instead they instead of reading the poem, just reading the poem. Yeah. So many people say this poem's titled. Yeah. And then they say the poem, and Which then they describe silly, yeah. the poem, what it's about. That happens in all situations. That happens in what, every kind of poetry. What it's about for thirty seconds, yeah. and then they read the poem. Yeah. yeah. When I'm just no, like, I oh my that god, too. it really annoys me. No, I mean I, I've I've done it a handful of times, but I always just read what I would normally read at a normal poetry reading. And it doesn't go over very well, but because that's the thing, it's such a like, um, I mean, it's hard for me to even really consider that 
poetry in a lot of ways because it's so uninclusive. It's so separated from the tradition of poetry in any real sense. I think they want to want to think they're connected to like jazz poetry, but it's even really separated from that tradition as far as I'm concerned. It just doesn't seem to come out of a tradition. It seems like this... I like the idea of adding a performative aspect into poetry, but this, but slam poetry to me doesn't feel like that. It feels like a performance that you're just calling poetry after the fact. I don't really see where the poetry part is, you know? So the audience, let's get, let's talk a little bit about the audience. But, I, yeah. but that's the part I like. Okay. The positive part of slam poetry is that's what's missing. Like if you talk about an academic poetry reading is you've got someone up there you've, with their book, that they've published. A lot of times they haven't even decided what they're going to read beforehand. They just kind of flip through the thing, find something, read it in a fairly monotone way a lot of the time. Don't really put any energy. Don't look at the audience that much. Or like are reading from the book as if they're reading from someone else's book. Yeah. It doesn't even necessarily seem like they're that familiar with with the the work, even though they wrote it, you know? (laughs) I think we've seen this. Ma- I yeah, I can definitely say we've seen this many times. Uh, or people who just read the book, they read the entire book, or they just read out of the book and they don't read anything else that they've prepared, anything new that they're working on. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's, but it's a little bland. It's it's a lot yeah, bland. It's very bland, and well, and it also makes you like it's hard, even when it's good, you know. I think a lot of people, and but it is funny. Like if you see someone who's an academic poet, that they start out that way because they've just not. I think a lot of it's just not having experience reading, right? Not having experience having to deal with an audience, and some of them grow and they're not like that anymore, right? And they become decent readers. But I think the problem is, like we say, like if you go to an MFA program, there's not really anything much about learning how to read in front of an audience, it's about writing something on a page and they're not really, they don't really focus too much. I mean, I think there's probably some writing programs that are more focused in that direction, but your general MFA programs are not really concerned with that part of it. And so they don't develop it. And then you've got a lot of people who are just writing. They're sharing things with people and that's great, but they're sharing it by letting people read what they're they're writing. They're not going out and selling it to them. So the academic thing is too bland and disengaged. The slam poetry thing is too engaged. <laughs> no, I don't think it's too engaged. I think it just kind of loses being poetry in the process. And the other thing I think is if you're talking about engaging an audience, it doesn't really engage an audience in a way. Like you were saying, the competition part bothers you. And I think the idea of having a competition is interesting, right? But it's the same as anything. Like, if you watch the gong show, (laughs) does that make you engage in the act that those people are doing because they're going to get gonged off if they don't do well? I mean, (laughs) a little bit, because your booing might affect that or your cheering might affect that. But in the long run, are you really engaged? No. It's a very surface-level engagement, right? It's not... um, I'm more interested in people who try to actually actively engage the audience in some way... But it's hard to do that. And I think as I was thinking about it and I think of people, you know, I think of movements or magazines or people who tried to do that. When I really thought about it, I was like, hmm, a lot of that is still almost falling onto the sort of competition end of things of being a surface level audience engagement. So if you think of audience engagement and uh, people who are doing that, what comes to mind to you? Who? Yeah. Or, or like audience. Well, what or who? Are we talking about, I mean, whether you're thinking of individual people or, or movements or whatever, are there things, are, are there areas of poetry where you feel like people have strived towards engaging the audience in a different way than just reading well, off the page? Or okay, yeah, so we're going to, we're going to have him on in another episode, probably the second follow-up to this episode. We'll we'll have Steve Benson on, but I'll tell you a little story about Steve Benson. Yeah. Language poet, right? Steve Benson. Uh, I got to read with him at Hall Walls once in Buffalo, New York. And 
uh, with Ma- it was it was it was Matt Matt Timmons uh, of L.A. Uh, Insert Blanc Press fame. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, him and I were opening for Steve. It was actually Matt and I did this like can- weird Canada tour. We it was after AWP that year in New York. We flew to Canada together, did three readings in Canada, and came back down through Buffalo. It was pretty fun. But uh, we um, we read with Steve at Hallwalls, and uh, Steve did this like incredibly incredible thing that I had never seen a poet do before. He did this like incredible interactive interactive thing. He 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 set us up. He set the audience up. You know, so everyone came in to the reading, and you know, if you hall, hall walls is like a little little black box, right? It's a yeah. little black box cinema, and uh, and uh, he. Everybody who came in, there was like these grad students from Buffalo there, and uh, they everybody everybody who came in the, the reading got this little this little slip of paper. It was just like a little 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 sheet of paper, and and everyone said something different on it. And I think mine said something like, "At seventeen minutes and thirty two seconds into the reading, repeat the line you hear." Well, that's out a cool loud, idea. Out loud, right? And. So there's a so like about about this. ten yeah, yeah, yeah about yeah, ten yeah. minutes into the reading maybe ten fifteen minutes into the reading out of nowhere somebody says like Steve Benson says a line and then somebody repeats the line out loud huh. and I think like everyone like at first that, yeah. everyone first kind of looked around like what the fuck is going on like is there like a com- is there like a commotion in the room or something like someone's being critical <laughs> of him or something and then. Every 30 seconds, it just started getting lit up. The whole room just got lit up. And then there were, like, sounds, too. Like, I think he might have, like, you know, make a sound of a cow or something. You know, yeah, there, yeah. It was like, you know, there was, like, these sort of things I going, like that. That's nice, yeah. Going on. And, um, but not only that. So, so he, he riddled, riddled the audience with these, lot, with these little directive things. And it, and it, and it, it made this caco- – it wasn't really cacophonous, but it made this, like – uncomfortability but but this interaction it made the audience part of the piece he would play off of the audience's uh, uh interactivity but also he had a script like okay like your normal poet who has instead of having like a book that he's reading out of yeah he had like a book i think that he was reading out of a little bit but then he had like a script or like another like a treated text and then he also had had uh, uh, headphones and a, and a and a and a cassette player on his hip, and every once in a while he would he would put the like the the script down and he would hit he would hit play on, was, on the cassette. It was hooked up to the sound system. Or something? No, he no. put it on his ears, and he would just be standing there, and he would be and he would and he would be re, he would be he would be reciting the his this prepared cassette tape that he had this cassette tape he had prepared, and he would be using it. And he would be in, and he would be going. Wait, I'm confused. He he had so a cassette tape. The audience could not hear this, but he was. The audience couldn't hear it, and he put the headphones on, and he would have these little private moments. He had a mic like pinned to his shirt, wow. and he had these like little private moments on stage where he would like turn his back to the audience, and he would just like start kind of talking to himself, but he huh. was actually repeating what was in the cassette player. Weird. And then he would and then he would go back to the script, and then people would start saying the audience would start saying things again. But I have to say, it was like one of the most memorable. So he, so he was working from different things: yeah. a treated text, a book that he had, a, a audio cassette that he had with his headphones, and then this like audience participation, repetitive, st- repetitive things, people repeating what he was saying, yeah, him working yeah. off of that. It was probably one of the most interactive reading. It was a performance. I mean, I really like that idea of, of getting the audience involved in that way, because uh, it also makes them listen. If you're waiting for the moment where you're supposed to say do something or whatever the direction is on your paper slip, it makes you have to pay attention in a closer way to what's happening. Well, um, it was also incredibly arbitrary. Like, yeah, seventeen minutes into the reading, repeat the line well, you hear. Like, yeah, what the, still, are you? Are you like? But still, it would make you sit there and kind of look like, okay, is it seventeen minutes? I guess you know. Sure. Uh, it makes you like ready for the moment. Yeah. Like you're waiting for you're, the. It's you're, anticipatory. You're right? anticipating you're like, the yeah. moment that you're going to say the line, yeah. or like you're going to say whatever's on the paper, or like whatever you're you're waiting to hear the line that you're like you almost are waiting to hear the line that you want to repeat. Wow. Yeah. No. I re- I really like that. Have idea. you ever seen a reading like that before? No, I haven't. Uh, I mean, I've seen people do things where audience says things at a certain point. 
But I like the idea that the listening... I've never seen someone do it where there's a listening I, context involved. You know? I did at the Maple Leaf once, and I still... Or maybe at the gold mine, the gold mine once. I still think I have it if I really dug for it on my computer. I did a, I did a Mad Lib poem. I wrote a poem that had all these, like, verb... I was asking for, give me a verb, give me a noun, give me an adjective, give me a... A, 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 a vegetable give me a, an animal and i asked all for the, this stuff and then and then uh and then i read the poem this is uh oh here I, you I go was thinking about that this is that's funny this is a magazine my friends and i this was our college literary magazine when we were undergraduates and we would we would often put one of those in the back and i was looking i was thinking about that which is a very simple way of doing it that one that you're looking at <laughs> create your own avant-garde poem yeah let me tell me read this here this is yeah, hilarious well, why don't you read the little introduction so this is yeah. this is yeah this is good okay that's funny what a great little segue what a mad lit become an avant-garde poet have you ever wanted to be a member of an elite group of avant-garde poets the diminuendo editors have but here at diminuendo we know that not everyone can throw away hours of poss- possibly otherwise productive time to verse poetic as easily as we can. So we have created an easy-to-use activity that will guide you through the creation of your own counterculture poetry. Just a few minutes out of your day, and you will have a piece of literature comparable to the works of some of the world's finest subversive poets. At Diminuendo, we call it Mad Lit. It's easy to do. Fill in the list below with the specified word forms, turn the page, and fill in the blanks with the corresponding words from your list. When you're done, read to a group of friends, shout from a sunroof of a moving vehicle, read it as a bedtime story to your gerbil, use it to swear your untidying love to a kitchen utensil, or laugh at how damned clever you are. Fill in the blanks. One, loved one or particular embittered enemy. Two, noun, plural. Three, verb, past tense. Four, adjective, five, adjective, six, noun, Eight noun. Oh yeah, we get the idea. nine noun. Okay, right. yeah. So you fill it so in you and fill it in, and then you turn. And I think this one, pretty, it was like a section of towel or something, and we just pulled. Oh, and then and then you flip the page here, and you you and then you can read. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I didn't see yeah. the second yeah, second yeah, part. Yeah. Now. So then you read. You know. You well, that's cool because you little, fill you fill it you fill without you f- knowing what it is. You fill yeah. it in first. Yeah. Well, that's and, how Mad Libs usually work, right? Or how you're supposed to do it. How you're supposed to do it without knowing what the text is about, right? I think we did that a handful of times in that magazine because it was like a quarterly, so it came out fairly often, and that was just kind of a recurring uh, segment, which was kind of fun, you know? Pretty fun. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, doing that in a live situation is more difficult. It's not impossible, I guess. I mean, I think the most, the way that I've seen it done most often is just with the simple surrealist technique of an exquisicore just having that be part of the reading. Like, I mean, certainly in the, in the days of the gold mine saloon here, when, when 17 poets reading was going on, there was certainly a period where they would do that every single time, right? Where they would hand out slip of papers at the beginning and just say, you know, write whatever, write a line on here. Right. And okay. So put let's... it in a hat. And then at the, you know, at some point in the reading, it'll be like, we're just, this is a poem. And someone would have come up with the first line is the title. And then you just pull different lines out of the hat and read it together, but the, it's a collaborative the, poem of the whole audience. Right? The, the, yeah, the grand, the, the exquisite corpse, the yeah. seventeen poets' exquisite corpse. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, always, I, I always, well, I always did, did like, I always yeah, did like that. They yeah, did it very consistently for a long time, um, which was nice. Yeah, I thought it was fun, and especially Jimmy would read it. I think, or yeah, sometimes David read it. Sometimes, sometimes Jimmy would read Jimmy it. Would read it. Yeah, but yeah, and I, it was also a nice break in a reading that. Sometimes readings can go on too long, and I feel like 17 Poets sometimes went on way too long. It was a nice break in the middle of that where it's like, oh, okay, get everybody back into this again. Feel like they're a part of it again. But I think there's a difference, too. Like, I liked, I like what you said about what uh, the reading you saw was doing. It made the audience involved by having to listen and by res- reciting something, which is participatory. But... I think we can also make a distinction between things that are participatory in action and things that are participatory in actually helping create the text, which are kind of two different things, right? They are. And I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I think those are kind of the two different routes you can sort of go as far as how to involve an audience. And there's maybe some things that are in between that create the text out of material that's already there, too. I mean, that's another thing you can do. There is just like something that does bother me about readings, and and it's not uh, 
it's not necessarily any any particular poet, but some poets are excessively bad at this uh, uh, than than others. I mean, come on, folks, this is the no good poetry podcast. We got to talk <laughs> about the shit, but. This whole idea of like I'm up here and I am the ego, the yeah. mastermind of this moment, this ego, egoic, you know, thing, and just everybody just kind of like, you know, uh, like looking at this person in awe or like, you know, this um, this like dynamic. It's like a dynamic of poetry readings that are kind of like they're just kind of like really boring, you know. Well, yeah, but part of that is the element of being on a stage, right? And that's not entirely those poets' fault. I think they're misunderstanding something. But audiences want that to some extent. They go there expecting that. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've seen great readings from, from or I don't not maybe not great readings, but great poetry from people who did not learn how to read yet. And loved it a lot more than some people who are really good readers but had shitty fucking poetry. And I don't think you want to be in either of those situations. But I'd still rather see the person who's a bad reader who has good poetry than the person with shitty poetry who's good at connecting with an audience. Say that again. You'd rather see the good poet who is bad at reading than to see the bad poet who's good at connecting with the audience, right? Uh. I'd, I'd really ideally like to see someone who's writing good poetry who's also good at connecting with the audience but you know you don't always get that right and I, I you know I've definitely I've definitely read you know some books of poetry and then and then actually like you know thinking about it this was this was like UMass days like Amherst uh, read Amherst poetry readings where I would like hear of a poet coming and be like oh this is a local poet or someone who's here now reading and I'll look up some of their work and I would I would read it and I would think man this is pretty good and then, and then you know, you get to the reading, and they just they just bomb, or they just yeah. like they're just not good readers. They're not good readers. And sometimes some of the best, some sometimes they're great like poets. Really good poets read. on the page are really not good readers. But I've also seen some people who aren't good readers, but if you're receptive, it kind of comes off interesting, right? Because their personality comes through. They're just weird, shy, idiosyncratic people. And that personality can come through and they're reading really quiet and they're, you know, saying their poem like that, which to me can be really effective sometimes, but it hardly ever goes over well with an audience because you don't have, you never have a whole audience that's that receptive to something like that, that they can get with it even when it is kind of okay. Uh, and there's also just this this thing, man, like, when we did that tour in 2011 and we, we went to those cities in red places, I didn't have a lot of my poetry memorized. I had a little bit memorized, but I didn't have much. But I made a really conscious effort during that tour to memorize things and try to do a good 80% of my reading without reading off of something. And it was really interesting to me to see how differently audiences reacted to that right because it frees you up you can look directly at people and you can gesture with your hands in a different way and you can do things that you can't do when you're reading off a page even if you're good at reading off of a page even if you're someone who can still look at the audience while you're doing that and even it's not the same thing right and also i think there's something from the audience where people want that there's a lot of people in any given audience, especially if you're trying to reach people who aren't necessarily people into poetry, who think like, look at this fucking nerdy bullshit. They got to read off of their page. The same way, what would you feel like if a, uh, if a songwriter got up there and had to read off of a page, right? I mean, I would maybe be okay with it, but I think most people would not be okay with that, right? Like, if you if you saw someone get up, a guitar player that's a singer-songwriter, and they got up and they had to set up their music stand and put their fucking sheet music in front of them. Like, that's not really considered acceptable. And it's weird, like, how did that become acceptable in poetry and it's not acceptable in music, right? Good point. So, I mean, the old tradition, the... Uh... The um, idea of the the memorizing your poetry, how that's part of the practice, how that's not is that you know do it's you do you think that's an essential of, part? Yeah. Of, it should be an essential part of the practice. I don't know. I don't know if it needs to be, but I think 
it is so much tied to what poetry came out of. I think if you want to be a serious poet, you need to make yourself do that, even if it's uncomfortable to you. Because it is like it is part of what poetry was, right? And how do you? I mean, I think it also opens up a lot, just personally, to understanding the sound of your own poetry. If you if you have to memorize it, that's a different thing, having a memorized poem and reading it, than it is even a poem you know very well and reading it off of a page. Right? It's a very different thing. Sure. Um, the delivery. The delivery and the way that the audience receives it, absolutely. That is the one thing that I'm going to give. I'm going to give that that one thing to slam is that those poets yeah. do memorize their their, no, their work, and, and that is a good and, part of it. You're right. Yeah. And you know, however, the delivery maybe can sometimes, and 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 you but know, not it's like, everybody, but I mean, a lot of them it is. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that is a nice positive part about slam is that it makes people be connected to it. Although I would hope, which for some slam poets it does, but one of the problems with slam is I would hope in that process of memorizing it, it makes you be critical of what you've written and adjust things and adjust things and be a little tighter with your writing, but adjust it not in a way to just appeal to an audience, adjust it in a way to be like, Oh, okay, this isn't working. The sound's not right here. This is, you know, a little clunky. I find myself tripping over this when I say it, is that because I just haven't practiced it enough, or is it because there's a problem in how I wrote this here, right? I mean, I lately, I mean, anything I've written lately, I read out loud. I definitely, I definitely make sure that I read it out loud to edit it. Yeah, that's an important part of it. If you think about the origins of poetry, and then it was always connected with music. And maybe that's one of the biggest problems with where poetry is today is that it's very disconnected from music. If you're, it, w- it was performance originally in every single culture, essentially. There was, in every culture you can imagine where poetry began was as performance in some level. And it was almost always connected with music, right? Definitely. And you, I don't know whether you memorize things or not. I mean, I think the most obvious way to involve audience participation is to have music with the poetry reading too which is a very simple thing but to have music playing behind a poet reading poetry should hit an audience on a visceral level but because of how society has trained people i think it often doesn't and sometimes just adding music in there does because people are conditioned to have music be a visceral response in a different way than poetry does and if you can have those things working together that can be amazing and that's also how poetry originally worked right and 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 there yeah and well there is some things in the slam scene that they yeah they sing they They sing like sing they sing some of them bring bring that auditory certain slam things do have like a house band or something that'll that'll play along with people who want to do it right who want to have the band play well, there's the jazz, there's that jazz poet thing. Yeah, which you know, well, I mean, jazz poet thing certainly. I, I which the, is, I mean, I kind of like that in some ways, you know. I just, yeah, we don't really see that. I mean, you don't just see that as much anymore. No, I think there was a period where it was kind of coming back a little bit, but it just kind of lost steam. I mean, it was going on for a while in New Orleans. It was kind of big. I think that was probably half of the poetry readings going in going on in New Orleans for a while, where you did have some kind of at least a couple jazz musicians, if not a full band, who would play behind play behind people. Remember the one at the Funky Butt? No. That, they used to do that. That was kind of... It was an open mic, and it was like that. And they had jazz musicians. In the open mic, they would do that. They would just play Just in the open people. mic, they'd have... Yeah. It was kind of great. I mean, the work wasn't any better <laughs> than it was with your average open mic, but it was a hell of a lot more interesting. I mean, I'm sure I've seen poets read in front of music, but the last poet who uh, I heard read with a backup band in New Orleans that just fucking killed it was John Sinclair. Yeah. I mean, mean, when John comes out and does his thing, he's definitely now. He's well, but he's just been he's been doing that for 50 years, you know. So he's he's in the he's in the groove, you know. He's got the groove. I think a lot of poets would have a hard time with that. I think some poets are adamantly against it. I know poets that I know very well. That I want to do, I want them to do readings with me, where the whole idea is having a musical backup, and they refuse to do it because they're like, I don't read in front of music. 
I want it to be about the poetry. And to me, you know, that's kind of missing the point. It still can be about the poetry. It still is about the poetry, but I mean, the poetry is mutable. And maybe that's part of this idea of like wanting to write your words in stone or something, which I'm not really about that. I I think you should be able to have your work and have it appear in different contexts and different situations and have that still be good and still be okay. Of course. You can bring it out. You can. I mean, I always think as a poet, my goal is for there to be interactivity on the page. But but all these working on all these levels, I don't think that a lot of poets are are necessarily thinking about this. I think there are a lot of them are thinking. I mean, I think it's like a lot of it's like ego driven, performative yeah, ego driven right, work, or like I have something specific to say. Or so yeah. So, I don't know, but I was thinking about this, and I was like, well, we talked about kind of the development of poetry in some ways, right? Poetry started off as this more kind of performative aspect that was merged with music, and it totally lost that, right? It became this very paper-driven sort of thing, which is funny, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, you got to blame the printing press for that a little bit, I'm afraid. But of course, if I think about the first kind of people who are trying to break out of that, I have to think about Dada and Surrealism for a little bit because, well, I don't know that it was directly audience driven. There is certainly an aspect of that where they're because there's this idea of provoking an audience or like prodding them out of their comfortable space, which is a way of interacting with an audience, right? That's different from how poetry normal inter- normally interacts with an audience. Well, even the even the 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 shake it the shake and bake poem, the the you know, the Zara uh put it caught, caught the newspaper, put it in a, ba- a bag, shake it up, spill it out, and then you have your dot up home. Which is funny because what they're doing is they're taking something that already is impl- is implicit or is an audience interactive, which is a newspaper, and they're reconstituting it into a different type of interaction with the audience which the audience has to interact with the newspaper and destroy it to create again. Yeah. No, I mean, that's true. I mean, doing the like kind of cut up newspaper poem is, I mean, again, that's the audience creating a poem. It is. Um, Out of. Although I don't know. Did they really ever do that in a reading setting? I don't think so. No, I think it was they just did that more as a generative setting, but you could easily adapt that to an audience setting. But did they do it and read? Did they do it also and and read those poems, or was it like, of course, sometimes you know? they read those poems, yeah. But I think of like another thing, like it's again a simple thing, like the music thing that Dada did, costumes, right? right? How does that change your interaction with an audience? I think it does a lot, and it, it's interesting. And you think of Dada and making these crazy costumes and doing, the, or like. Doing a reading as if it's a court hearing, you know? <laughs> Who did that? Dada did that. Yeah. They did that a few times where it's like, this is like a trial. That's an interesting idea, right? I mean, I think they were they were making some, at least some gestures towards thinking about how do you make your interaction with the audience different? And a lot of it was about being provocative. And I think they were doing that to piss people off in a lot of ways, but that's a way of interacting with an audience. And a pissed off audience is a lot more engaged than a bored audience. So that's for damn sure. Mock trial would be a good idea. Like bring it back, the poetry reading, poetry trials. Yeah. I kind of like that idea. The poetry trials, yeah. But they did that kind of thing. But even a lot of the generative techniques that I think it's weird, like you're saying, like the, the newspaper cut up thing. Or the exquisite core thing, or like the questions generative technique, which I love. Where they would do that, where you would just get a question, and you have to answer the question. But then you just put all the answers together without the questions out. Well, they did it both ways. Sometimes you would include the question, sometimes you wouldn't. Or you would write things not knowing what the question was, and then read the question with the thing that was written, and it would change the meaning, right? Like you might have, what is sadness? But you had already written something without knowing that was the question, and then you would read the line, right? And like, I don't know. Let's what is it? Take a random thing that's sitting over here. What is sadness? There is no place for a minister's son or something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, not knowing what the question is going to be, and it changes the meaning when you put that question in front. But I don't think, the weird thing is they never made that jump to think that you could do that in an audience situation. They just did that on their own to create texts. 
or it almost seems natural. And people have certainly done that since, and I love that. But it's weird to me that they never thought like, oh, wait, we could just actually have the audience do this instead of just doing this on your own. But maybe that's an ego thing, too. Maybe they didn't trust the audience to do it. Well, I think <laughs> I think it's all about the idea of, you know, you're putting an audi- you're putting the audience on the spot, you know? Yeah. And I just don't know if the is the climate right for that is the appetite right for that you know well another one that i've seen people do that i think is great that's an old technique that works really well in an audience section is ranka not familiar so ranka was a traditional japanese collaborative writing technique okay um and basically the idea is it's a little weird to adapt it to English because it made more sense in Japanese. But the way you normally adapt it into English is you have, like, certain syllables and certain lines, right? So you have to get a group of people together, and it doesn't really matter how many. But they would do this. They would, like, sit around. Japanese poets would sit around and do this together. It's kind of like combined haikus in some way, except more interesting because you're, like, building off of each other. It's basically a series of tankas, and each tanka is really like almost the same format as a haiku. Okay. And like so, each so each tanka is a three line stanza with five, seven, and five syllable lines. And then you follow you after each someone does one of those, one of those tankas, and then the next poet does one that's a pair of seven syllable lines, just two seven syllable lines, and then someone does a tanka again. And then someone does two seven-syllable lines again. And you just build off of that. Huh. Um, and I have seen people do that in audience situations, which is pretty interesting, right? Like where you have the audience do it or you call people up. You know, you're like, okay, now you now you do the next one. Um, but again, yeah, you are putting people on the spot. And you that seems particularly like you would need a certain kind of audience to be able <laughs> to, to get pull that to off. follow you along with yeah. that. What about C.A. Conrad? Yeah. Did his um, uh, his somatics? Is it somatic poetry? Somatic poetry, right? Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit. So it's it's these it's these it's these exercises. It's this directive exercise um sort of meditative poetics, but it's not really meditative, it's more like it's active. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea is to get it's more of they're almost like magic spells or something, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> magic spells. I like yeah. that. They're like poetry is magic spells or something. Um, but soma, right? You know, like soma from like from Hindu and Middle Eastern literature. That idea. It's like this kind of mythical drink that um, gods and heroes would drink, and it would make them have this kind of energizing visionary experience when they drank the soma right like if you think of like bhagavad gita or like you know the, the soma the soma comes up in that i think it comes up in zoroastrianism things as well like zoroastrian literature as well um so i guess that's where he's getting the name of this idea from soma um and i'm looking at his little introduction here and he says the word soma is derived from the sanskrit and Indo-European tongues, meaning to press and be newly born. And then, of course, soma in, in ancient Greek means the body, right? And you think of, I think we get that in English in some ways too, right? So there's this kind of idea of this coming out of your body as well, right? But it being this, um, but yeah, it's these kind of things. But they're really interesting because they're, just to read them as poetry is great. But they're, I guess, designed as things for people to actually do. Uh, and I wonder how many people who read these actually perform the kind of rituals that are involved in these. But, uh, you know. Do you want to give us a couple or one? I'm going to read one, and then I'm going to give you this packet here, and you can read one. Okay, great. Um, I'm just going to read the first one by by accident. He's been doing these for a while now. He's got a lot of them, I think. Um, but these, I think, might have been some of the early ones. So this is, of this collection, the number one somatic poetry exercise. It says, wash a penny, rinse it. 
slip it under your tongue, and walk out the door. Copper is the metal of Aphrodite. Never, ever forget this. Never. Don't forget it, ever. Drink a little orange juice outside and let some of the juice rest on your mouth with the penny. Oranges are the fruit of Aphrodite, and she's the goddess of love, but not fidelity. Go somewhere outside. Go. Get going with your penny and juice. Where do you want to sit? Find it and sit there. What is the best love you've ever had in the world? Be quiet while thinking about that love. If someone comes along and starts talking, quietly shoo them away. You're busy. You're a poet with a penny in your mouth. Idle chit-chat is not your friend. (laughs) Be quiet, so quiet. Let the very sounds of that love be heard in your bones. After a little while, take the penny out of your mouth and place it on top of your head. Balance it there and sit still a little while, for you are now moving your own forces quietly about in your stillness. Now get your pen and paper and write about poverty. Write line after line about starvation and deprivation from the voice of one who has been loved in this world. <laughs> That's great. Okay, this one. I'm going to read this one number four. I like this one. Yeah. This is, well, okay. Now that one, you know, we, we could do these. We You know, these could be done. These could be done like, okay, so the, the piece is a poem, but it's an exercise. I mean, well, it's like, it's not clear. Are these poems or are they means to generate poems? Poems. Are or they both, I guess. The you exercises. Know? Read them in a reading, or like maybe someone's doing the reading, and then someone's doing the activities describing the reading at the reading. But it doesn't seem like things you could do at a reading. Okay. It seems but like this one, more like well, maybe some of them do, but well, maybe you know. we could choose yeah. some and do them in a reading. Ready? Yeah. This is number four. Take a red magic marker and draw a nine on your naked chest. Draw the nine from the bottom up. Start the tip of its tail at your navel and sweep up. To have the round circle of its head in the middle of your breasts. Put on a shirt that conceals the nine from other eyes. Go out to the corner and quickly choose a direction. At the next corner, choose another direction. Don't think about where you're going. Instead, spend the time between corners looking carefully at the world. Finally, come to a complete stop on the ninth corner. Look across the street and focus on four different objects. Draw a line to connect them, looking carefully at what's inside the square you've just made. What's outside it? What's half in? Imagine you string lights to make the square. Imagine its contents at night, dimly lit. Imagine the square a year from now, ten years from now. Now go somewhere quickly and write. Run. Run to a place where you can write. Suddenly the city, your city, is a place where places to write come to mind. You must always know those places at all times. So these are like little inspirationals, you know, but they're also directive and they're also trying to get people to move around and be... Yeah, I mean, what, what? yeah. I mean, I, I, I really like them. I don't know. They fa- fall in this weird space, though. Yeah, because you're right. It's like directives of... But I think the thing that they do that's really great is... Whether anyone actually does those things, and maybe they will, which I I like the idea of people actually doing them, and they're funny, and it's funny to think about someone doing the doing. It's them. fucking hilarious. Um, it's also it's it's mainly kinda, it's mainly hilarious thing about CA doing these. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> but 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 no, I just think it's funny to think about people doing it, and like, it, what if you had this movement of people going all out doing these things? It'd be it'd be kind of great. But I also think it. Maybe better than a lot of other things really instructs people in what poetry writing is really about, right? Because it does. <laughs> Isn't that what <laughs> poetry is really like? You're taking this weird cobbled together all these things that you just happen to run into in life, but also your like kind of philosophies on things and your artistic inspirations on things and melding them together in some way but it's kind of like a paint by numbers version of poetry or something right which is kind of wonderful yes and also this is like this this these these things like take the whole fucking mfa workshop method and just like totally put it on its ear yeah this is like a detour, a detourment, or like a, the act of detour, the act of um, 
uh, psychocartography or like this, yeah. uh, like uh, the being a flaneur, you know, it's like sort of going out and like, like what letting was the that? city What was that you. group who would do that? It was all like you just wandered. Situationist International. Oh, Situationist, yeah. Or you just wandered. Yeah. And like, yeah, psychocartography. Yeah. They're just like going out. And yeah. like you go find what you're supposed to find. Yeah. Like with no expectations. Just like you let the city take you where it wants to take you. But these do kind of have expectations, but they're interesting, right? Like the one I read, like, okay, you're thinking about a time you were loved and then you're supposed to go write about poverty. Which is an interesting, like, <laughs> after doing these things with the penny and the orange juice and everything. But then you're sp- think about a time where you've loved, which I guess... I don't know, that kind of makes sense to me, like the penny and the orange juice and that taste influencing that memory in some way. Sounds gross to me. Yeah, well, I think that's part of the idea. Like, What else do we got here? We got uh, a few more things, or we, you know, I mean, you yeah. know, okay, we're just talking about ourselves a little bit, but, you know, you brought me this poem a few years ago, and, and I saw it, and I read it, and I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe we should turn this into some sort of board game or some sort of game, and then we kept ready. Yeah, we well, kept splicing I, it, I and we kept I figuring had it the out. Idea and then... that I wanted it to be a drinking game because a drinking game, yeah. It was a series of poems that I, at the time, I had my regular bar around the corner, Cosmos, and I wrote all of them sitting at that bar. And there's a lot of you know mention of alcohol in them because I was sitting at the bar, and that's what you see around you everywhere. <laughs> Um, and I think I had it in, in mind that I wanted to be a drinking game, but you had the, the idea, which I think was a good idea that maybe you were like, well, what if we made it a board game? I actually think I started laying out a concept for a board game. Yeah, I think you did. And then it became a card game. Well, I think we just kind of got sidetracked. I mean, well, one of the disadvantages with a board game is it's not that interactive in some ways because you can't take it with you wherever you go. But yeah, I think what we both wanted was something where it made people interact with poetry in some way. Well, I often wonder, and any listeners who have played it, how many people who have bought it have actually played it? Let, yeah, let's. T- and, and what is it? It's cocktail poems, right? Cocktail it's poems, a, yeah. an, an intoxicating adult game, which is our idea of doing a card or doing a uh, drinking game. As poetry, poetry, poetry is game. a drinking game, yeah. and kind of loosely inspired by the uh, seven, the, the infamous seventies scandalous uh, game called Pass Out. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I think sometime in the course of Frank, while we were developing Frank this, we Breeze ran across or something? Pass Out. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, well, and I think just also thinking about in general, like you think of like you know you're in college or whatever the drinking games. A lot of them are these memory based drinking games. Uh, oh, what's the one with the ducks? That you always had to do. I don't remember. Memory game? Yeah, there was a lot of memory drinking games. You never played any of those? Or was like you had a thing you had to remember? Yeah, I was right. Frank Breezy. Frank Breezy. Okay. Yeah, it's 1971. 1971. Frank Breezy. Pass out. Sip and strip. But yeah, no, I mean, I think that was the nice thing, or is the nice thing about cocktail poems, is it, it makes the audience interact with them um with the with the poetry that's in there and there is a little bit of a generative content in the fact that there's only one line on each card so the order of the things get put together changes every time every time yeah and i think people you know what's really funny is when we sell that at book uh at readings and tour and and, and uh, at, uh at book fairs and things uh I think people are drawn to it because they see it in this little cute little tin and then they ask what it is and we tell them it's a drinking game and then they immediately have to have it. Well, so, and that's why I wonder, though. I wonder how many people have actually played, played it. Because I think people buy it because they like the idea, but I wonder how many people have actually played it. But, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. But uh, there's only been a handful of times where we've played it at a reading and it's always interesting. Maybe next year once we do edition two, we can we can we can play it at the poetry fest. Yeah, well, that'd be good. Poetry fest after party. But I, I think when we played it at Four Face Liar. Oh yeah, that was that pretty, was nice, right? That was, pretty, that was a lot of fun. Schaefer Schaefer Hall was bartending. Yeah, it was and, pretty. Uh, yeah, we got he, wait. He stepped away from the bar to come play the game with us. Ah, <laughs> uh, Schaefer. Um, but yeah, I don't know, but I. Wish there were more people trying to find ways to do that. 
to do to more interactive audience interactive more more interactive audience poetry but like the like the wonderful thing about cocktail poems i don't know if people ever play the damn thing or not but one of the things that like when we sell that at at events you definitely yes you get people who are who are interested in poetry that buy it but I feel like you sell a lot more of that to people who are not really that interested in poetry. And that's the advantage of finding ways to interact with an audience because people who don't care about poetry will care about it if you find another way for them to approach it, another way for them to to interact with it. Um, sure. I think it's it's... What's funny is this, okay, you talk about audience, and audience can exist in the physical sense of the performance space, and it can also exist within the greater world around us, and we are interacting more with our phones these days than ever, and I just, like, I haven't really seen a lot oh, no, of no, do good... we need to make phone poetry? Do we need to make mobile phone poetry? M- mobile phone poetry <laughs> app? Di- bring back dial-a-poem? Bring back, uh, bring back dial-a-poem, or do, uh... You know, I guess, I guess, uh... I guess we can give a little we can give a little honorable mention hat tip to the uh, to the uh, the poetry brothel kids because yeah, you know I mean, it's not a bad idea. So they, people probably don't know a lot about the poetry brothel. It was only in a couple cities, right? They did it here. I think they did it in L.A. They did New York, maybe maybe Chicago, New York. Chicago, yeah. no. I think they did New know? York, right? Yeah. And I don't know. It's kind of a weird concept. The idea was right. Well, there would be the stage show at the beginning. But then you could pay for a private reading of a poem. Right? Am I explaining that correctly? Yeah, yeah. It's a little, you know, it's yeah. a little sexy, little, I guess, like, you well, know. Well, yeah, I mean, it was called Poetry Brothel, so it was kind of like a little a brothel. So oh. the people dressed kind of sexy. The poets who were so There's a little burlesque side to it. Yeah, there was a burlesque side. But it was kind of like you paid for a private reading of a poem where someone read, which is a which is a different experience to have someone in a very personal way read that poem just to you rather than to a large audience, right? Well, if you're out there listening to this episode and you do some sort of interactive poetry and you you do a thing or you have a website or you hear this and you you you're you know want to tell us about your interactivity that you're yeah, uh, planning do. or plotting I mean, or I think driving. both of us we tried to do some more research. We thought we would find more than we did. Um, we figured there was stuff we didn't know about, and we thought it would be more accessible, and that we could find it. And I, I mean, I was—I don't know about you, man, but I was kind of shocked about how more. little I could find if you start trying to search into that. Well, maybe we should develop another game, and maybe it should be—maybe it—maybe there's a way to develop another game and make it as a learning tool. With different poetry forms and different poetry yeah. terms. Well, I mean, yeah. With poetry. And That'd it could be, cool be to do. a little scratch pad thing or like but, some sort of, you know. Well, I think what I would really like to do, I think we talked about this, is maybe we need to have some kind of reading series where we commission a bunch of poets to create something that's specifically designed to be audience interactive and make that a regular running thing. Because that, then that and, would be making people think about that and... And I think it would be a fun night to go to a reading where it was all poets who had tried to design something that was going to be audience interactive that night. And hey, you know, we were we were in the quarter earlier uh, interviewing uh, Cubs the Poet. It's yeah, different. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too much into that because we're going to do another episode on that. But we should mention that we're going to do an episode on typewriter poetry, which... Uh, which is kind of like a mix between performance art and 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 writing poetry in some ways. Sure. Uh, and that is that's another thing that I think is trying to do uh, to push how audience and poetry interacts. Sure. Uh, and it's not that we uh, are neglecting that. We just didn't mention it because we're going to do another episode right on that. Episode. Yeah. Well, okay. I think that kind of takes us out today. Uh, we've tackled a bunch of different topics of interactivity and uh, audience interactivity and the, the different types of poetry readings and different things that can go on and some of our experiences and poets that we think are pushing things and some historical context for uh, for it. So. And one last thing. If you enjoyed this episode, please go leave us a review on iTunes. It's really how we get new listeners, and we would love it if you gave, it, gave us a review. Uh, and it would really help us out and spread the word. This has been the No Good Poetry Podcast. See you next week.